Good morning. Great to see all of you, not least if you're new or visiting for one of your first times. Really glad you're here. My name's Philip and I'm one of the pastors here. And as Becca said, we're starting a brand new series this morning called Ask London that we've been building up to for a little while. And uh, if you're not sure what it all, it's all about, basically the premise of the series is this. We, as a church, a number of us asked our friends, family, colleagues over the summer, if you had an objection to the Christian God or if you had a question for the Christian God or if the Christian faith is not for you, why is that? And we asked people if they wouldn't mind putting those objections or questions to video, which a number of people did. We've had some really interesting, great responses. And what we're going to do week by week is just look at a different topic, a different objection, and do our best to engage with it. And actually, our kids, King's Kids, uh, 3 to 11s behind me, they're doing a very similar thing in an age-specific way, asking some of these big questions, as are our teenagers as well. So we're doing it together as a church. So without further ado, why don't we roll the first video, and we'll see what we're looking at this week. So the question's interesting. Um, I have no objection at all, uh, none whatsoever. In the same way, I've got no objection to all the other things I don't believe in. I don't necessarily object to there being a God. I don't believe in God, therefore that's like me objecting to the Easter Bunny, like to me. The more I grew up, the more I learned, the more I became a history teacher, the more I needed fact and the more I needed evidence, the more and more I struggled with thinking I, I, I'm not convinced there is anything. There is a, a God. Perhaps a better question may be, why don't I believe in God? I'd rather you came and asked me about castles, because I can, I'm, I'm pretty good on castles. Why does God not provide more of an evidence-based approach? Why does he not, I don't know, deliver notes? All my life I've never seen any evidence that I find in any way compelling to believe in a God. Um, if I did, I probably would. I've never seen any evidence that I find in any way compelling to believe in a God. That's what we're looking at this morning. And some other contributors said, why is there no evidence-based approach? Somebody else said, I thought rather poetically, where are the notes from God for us to know that he exists? And just to say, we're we're really grateful to these people who've, um, I think, had the courage to put these questions and objections to video. I really admire them for doing so, and we want to thank them for doing so. And also, if you're here this morning as somebody who wants to specifically come to explore this question, you've come as a friend perhaps, we're really glad you're here, and I really admire you for coming along and having giving it the time to listen and explore. So thank you for coming. And it's a really important, interesting question, isn't it, that's been raised this morning in week one of this series You know, if somebody with as brilliant a mind as the philosopher Bertrand Russell got to the end of his life and said and concluded, quotes, God didn't leave enough evidence, that's a question worth engaging. It's something we need to explore, we need to get into. Richard Dawkins, in his book, A Devil's Chaplain, says, I think, very helpfully, next time somebody tells you something is true, why not say to them, what kind of evidence is there for that? And if they can't give you a good answer, then I hope you'll think very carefully before you believe a word they say. I think he makes a good point. We need evidence. And evidence is something that Christians should take really, really seriously when it comes to having a faith in God. In the Bible, in the book of 1 Peter, we're told as Christians that we should always be ready to give an answer, gently and respectfully, for the reason for the hope that we have in God. We should always be ready to give evidence, to give reasons for a faith in God. Bible thinks pretty clear that it's not enough as a Christian to say, well, I was brought up to believe this, so I do. Or I feel it to be true, 
so it is. That's not sufficient, the Bible would say. And I think if we want to have integrity as Christians, then we, we should always be exploring. We should be joining in with this kind of process, asking these big questions, ensuring that we do have reasons and evidence for a faith in God. So what I want to do in the next 25 minutes, 30 minutes, is engage with this question in several stages. What we're going to do is this. We're going to start off by looking at the, uh, what we mean by the term evidence. Secondly, and we'll spend the bulk of our time here, we're going to ask the question, is there any good evidence? Thirdly, we're going to say, well, why might the evidence not be enough? And fourthly, how might we respond? Okay. So what do we mean by the term evidence? Is there any good evidence? Why might the evidence not be enough? And how, how might we respond? All right? So, firstly, what do we mean by evidence? I think it's really important to agree what we mean by this term, because it can mean a number of different things, can't it? Evidence, for example, can mean proof. So I guess that would come from schools of thought like positivism and strong rationalism that would say, for example, that you, we definitely can know things, can know things are true, and the way that we know things are true is through definition or through experiments. So by definition in that one plus one equals two. Or we know the statement, uh, all bachelors are unmarried men, to be true. By experiment, we can know things to be true because we can, we can boil water and test it and see that it's true. And a number of people would say, well, that's, that's why you shouldn't really believe in God because you can't prove in that sense that he exists. You don't have empirical evidence with data that scientists have analysed and looked at in a laboratory. They might say, if what you say is true about the existence of God, then you should be able to prove it to me, show it to me that it exists. And of course, we don't want to denigrate that, that type of evidence. It's really important that we have that kind of evidence, isn't it? Not least in scientific research and so on. But it strikes me that in reality, there are lots of things that we can't do scientific experiments in a lab for that we strongly believe to be true, that we're convinced are true. So like, for example, historians are convinced that Queen Victoria visited Italy in 1879. Can't do an experiment to prove that, but you look at all the clues, the evidence in that sense, and you conclude that happened, then it's true. Or differently, I'm pretty convinced that I know my memory, I ate cornflakes two, cornflakes two weeks ago. Now, short of doing a deeply unpleasant experiment, I don't think that you can prove that necessarily in a lab. I, but, if I look at the clues in front of you, I can, I can present evidence to you to show that statement to be true, that I can trust my memory. Or thirdly, many of us know, or we trust the fact that someone loves us. We don't do an experiment for it. We look at the evidence in front of us, and we trust it to be true, that somebody loves us. We believe in and know lots of things to be true that can't be proven in a lab. So, I would suggest we need a definition that we can apply to all things and then apply that to whether God exists or not. When I was uh, younger, I remember my mum used to love watching a uh, quite well-known detective crime show called Inspector Morse, which ran for a number of years and finished in 2000. And I used to love watching it with her as a teenager, not least because it was set in Oxford, and we lived in Oxford, so it was great fun trying to spot the different landmarks as they popped up in the programme. But even more enjoyable than that was the process of watching Inspector Morse discover the clues. I used to really enjoy it as he went through clue by clue looking at the evidence, coming to his conclusions. There was a famous episode, for example, in which uh, a famous opera singer had been killed in an Oxford College, Oxford University College, and there he was investigating who was at the source of this crime. And he looked at different clues. I remember he, he interviewed a student who was a suspect. Looked at the clue, what that would tell him. 
He found the murder weapon in a different student's room. Looked at that clue and what that would tell him. He then discovered that the opera singer had a dark secret that she'd been hiding for many years. And he looked at that clue and what that would tell him. And I would love watching Morse go from clue to clue. And I would want to see if I could solve the crime before he did or before my mum did or before I got sent to bed, whichever one came first. It was great fun watching and analysing the clues. My point is, many of us, we know many things to be true because we look at the clues in front of us. We find then the simplest and most comprehensive and most coherent explanation for the evidence. That's how we know many things to be true. That's how we know that Queen Victoria did visit Italy in 1879. That's how I know that I did eat cornflakes two weeks ago. That's how you trust that someone does love you. So we're not this morning trying to prove empirically the existence of God as though it could be proven in a lab. Rather, what we want to do is take a different approach and identify whether there are any clues available to us and what are the explanations that have been offered for these clues and what kind of conclusion might that lead us to okay so are there any good clues number two are there any is there any evidence the first clue i want to draw your attention to is the beginning of the universe now until fairly recently there was a significant uh, pretty reasonable divergence of opinion in the scientific world, as to whether the universe had a beginning or not. So no one less uh, famous than Albert Einstein in his time concluded that the universe didn't have a beginning. But in recent times, it seems scientists are almost unanimously agreed that there was a beginning to the universe. Professor Stephen Hawking says this, Almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. I.e., a very long time ago, It seems about 13 to 15 billion years ago is the rough consensus. There wasn't a universe. And then there was a Big Bang. And then there was. That seems to be the consensus. And so the question boils down, therefore, to whether the Big Bang had a cause outside of itself that brought it into existence, or whether it didn't, whether it happened. And it seems to me there's an additional clue that points more towards there being a cause than there not being a cause. And the clue is in this word, contingency. So all things in the world are what scientists and philosophers call contingent. That means that they all have a cause outside of themselves that means they can exist. Yeah? So even if you're not familiar, even if you're not one of the 10 million people that watches The Great British Bake Off last week, you'll be familiar with the content of the programme. And I think last week they were making bread. And so you could take a loaf of bread that was baked on the Great British Bake Off last week. And if you wanted to know what the cause of its existence was, you could cut it up into tiny, 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 tiny pieces, analyse it to the last bit of ingredient, to the last molecule even, and you wouldn't within itself find the cause of its existence, would you? You'd have to go outside of the loaf of bread to find the cause of its existence, i.e. the baker. And effectively, the universe is a huge pile of cakes in that respect. It's a huge pile of contingent entities. And therefore, the universe, at the very beginning, would have required some cause outside of itself in order to begin. And that cause would have to have been able to exist in and of itself, do you see? Otherwise, you'd have had cause after cause after cause, infinite number of causes. At some point, you need a cause... That begins the whole thing. And that cause needs to be able to exist in and of itself. Now, nothing here suggests we should therefore believe in the God of the Bible. Not at all. But if we are looking for clues, 
And I think this is a helpful one in suggesting there may be something outside of a purely material, natural world. There may be a cause. Okay? First clue. Second clue is the fine-tuning of the universe. There's a well-known scientist called Francis Collins, and uh, he led the Human Genome Project. And he, like many scientists, explains that for the uh, universe to be conditioned to the place where it can be what it is today, you've got about 15 constants in place, like a gravitational constant and various constants about the strong and weak nuclear forces. And every single constant has to have precise values of itself and be perfectly calibrated together. And Francis Collins goes on to say this. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, The universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxy, stars, planets, or people. There's a writer and theologian and church pastor called Andrew Wilson, uh, who's a pretty bright guy, to say the least, degree from Cambridge and PhD from King's College London, and he's helped me a bit with with this talk and with this series. And he gives, I think, a really helpful illustration to highlight the improbability of all of these conditions just coming to the perfect moment purely by chance. So he says this. You need to imagine you've got 15 huge roulette wheels in the sky. He calls them galactic roulette wheels. And every roulette wheel represents one of these 15 constants that's required to be exactly as it is for the universe to be as it is. And each galactic roulette wheel has a million possible numbers. It's that big. And so he says, imagine the first one represents, say, the gravity constant. And someone sets this huge wheel spinning, and then they throw the ball in, and the ball's bouncing around the roulette wheel, number after number, thousands and thousands of number, and eventually it comes to land on exactly the right one for the universe to be as it is. And you go to the second huge galactic roulette wheel, set that one spinning, in goes the ball. This one uh, represents the size of the strong nuclear constant, And the wheel is spinning and the ball is in. It's going past hundreds of thousands of numbers. And it too comes to land on exactly the right number for the universe to exist. Do that 12 more times. Every single wheel you spin, every single time, the ball lands on precisely the right number out of a million possible options. And then he says, you get to the 15th wheel, the final one, and that gets set spinning. And in goes the ball then, and it's bouncing round and round and round, and it's coming towards exactly the right number for the universe to exist, and it lands on the number next to exactly the right number for the universe to exist. And then Andrew Wilson says, imagine what would happen if that did happen. He says this, the entire universe collapses, sucking the horsehead nebula and the Andromeda galaxy and the Alps and the Cook Island into a vortex of non-existence. I saw in my mind's eye the mountains being hoovered up and the oceans boiling and cars flying upside down through the air and crashing into concrete bridges and bursting into flames and the New York skyscrapers being levelled and covering the city with rubble. All because one of the numbers was out by one part in a million. And I began to realize that these 15 numbers, all of which have to be exactly what they are for a universe like this to exist, made the galactic roulette idea seem completely impossible. I just couldn't believe that there was one big bang, caused and guided by nobody at all, and that it just happened to produce a universe so staggeringly suitable for life. Now, the common riposte to this argument is that why is there only one universe? They may well be 
lots of universes, billions of universes even. And so the argument goes, if there are billions of universes that have all existed over enormous amounts of time and space, then surely one would eventually, by sheer chance, happen to have the right fine-tuning to be able to sustain life. And our universe happens to be that one, or one of those ones, perhaps. And as I've been looking and reading, the best illustration that i found that I think deals with this dilemma is by a philosopher called John Leslie. I think it's a good illustration because people from both sides of the aisle, as it were, would use this illustration, so it seems a fair one to use, to try and deal with this dilemma of what was behind this immaculate, amazing fine-tuning of the universe. Was it a coincidence, because there were lots and lots of universes, or was it a particular cause? And John Leslie says this. He says, imagine that you, unfortunately, have been sentenced to death by a firing squad. And so you're led out one morning from the prison into the courtyard, and you see before you 50 trained marksmen ready to execute you. And you're blindfolded. A few more seconds pass by, and you hear the sergeant mutter the immortal words, ready, aim, fire. You hear this loud bang. And a few seconds pass. You start to realize, I'm I'm alive. The, The 50 trained marksmen have all missed. Presumably then, in a few seconds, you'd start to think, how could that be? How am I alive? How have I survived? And at which point, John Leslie says, there's probably two possible explanations that might come to mind. You might say, well, I guess today, across the world, there could have been a, a lot of executions. There could have been a thousand executions taking place today. So given that, it's not unlikely or impossible that one of the executions could have contained the 50 marksmen who would all have missed at the same time. And mine happens to be that one. And that is pretty surprising, but I guess whoever survived would think that. So that's the explanation. Or you might say, 50 trained marksmen have missed. That does seem unimaginably unlikely. Someone must have got to them, bribed them, got them drunk, something. Whatever reason, it does look like there must be someone behind all of this. Someone must have engineered this for me to survive. The second explanation, for me, does seem the more likely one for the fine-tuning of the universe. Francis Collins, to quote him again, said very simply, but I think quite profoundly, it just looks as though the universe knew we were coming. So, if there being a possible cause behind the Big Bang is the first clue, to the existence of God, or the possible existence of God. The second clue is this perfect fine-tuning of the universe that may well have had someone behind it. Okay, third clue is the clue from morality. Now, the argument from morality goes a little bit like, well, it goes exactly like this. If God does not exist, there's no basis for objective moral values. Two, objective moral values do exist. Three, therefore, God exists. That's quite a clear, crisp argument. You might want to be able to pick holes in it. It might not resonate, but as a logical argument, it bears some weight. Let's see how that's the case. So let's go through those three little points quickly. If God does not exist, there's no basis for objective moral values. Um, Recently, I was at a wedding with my wife, and and we were chatting to a friend of hers during um, during during the meal. And she explained uh, that she'd been a little bit offended, frankly, by what was uh, preached about during the service, what was spoken about. It was a, a 
clearly Christian wedding, and she was a little bit offended by it. And frankly, I had some sympathy with why she was offended. Anyway, we carried on uh, talking and discussing, and there was a really interesting discussion, because on the one hand, our friend was saying that she felt that no one should be able to tell her what she should or shouldn't believe, or what is or isn't true. She felt it was up to everyone to be able to discover their own truth, to find out what's true and right for them. I was sort of thinking, and we were chatting over a glass of wine, and I responded, well, doesn't that give you kind of a slight problem? Because don't you also believe that there are certain things that are absolutely right or wrong in life? And we carried on chatting. She gave an example, which I won't disclose now, because she doesn't, I think it's a personal thing, but she agreed that she did believe that, that there were certain things that regardless of what any individual believed were right for them, were absolutely wrong. That people shouldn't be allowed to do those things. And so I was kind of reflecting on that conversation, not least in, in this week as preparing for this talk. And I guess it made me reflect this, that if there is no cause behind the Big Bang, and if there is no intentional fine-tuning behind the universe, so I guess we've misinterpreted clues one and two, then we are effectively just the result of time plus matter plus space. We are accidental descendants of humans. And if that is what we are, then how is there any basis for believing anything can be absolutely right or wrong? We can absolutely say, I don't like that, but we can't say that is objectively morally wrong if there is no, if you like, objective moral law giver. Step two, objective moral values do exist. You see, we do, don't we? just like our friend at the wedding, very deeply believe that there are certain things that absolutely are right or wrong. We know that genocide and torture and the oppression of women and racism is deeply wrong. I remember a while ago inviting a, a lovely old lady into the school that I was teaching in to speak to the to children that I was teaching, the teenagers that I was teaching. Her name was Martha. And uh, Martha had spent about 18 months in Auschwitz during World War II as a Jewish young girl. And she had survived, hence she was able to give this talk, and, uh, but had lost almost all of her family. And she recounted the tales of seeing her mother being beaten to death in front of her eyes and watching her father go to the gas chambers, never to emerge. So imagine after that talk, which was I'll never forget, if I said to Martha, Martha, it wasn't really wrong what happened to you. Because after all, the Nazis... They didn't feel that what they were doing was wrong. In fact, they felt what they were doing was right. They felt it was for the, actually for the greater good, for the good of humanity. So, Martha, it's not really meaningful for us to discuss right or wrong. It's just the way it is. How would you feel if you heard me say that to her? You'd be appalled, wouldn't you? And, and rightly so, all of us would. We know that what happened to Martha was utterly twisted and evil. But I think that kind of talk is the logical outworking of a belief system that says we're just here as an accident of time and space and matter. Richard Dawkins, again, I think helpfully and honestly, says the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. There's another philosopher uh, called Frederick Nietzsche, you may have heard of, who isn't particularly a favourite figure among Christians, but I really quite admire him in many ways. Because Nietzsche, and I think to an extent Dawkins, have some integrity with their worldview. 
They have looked their worldview squarely in the face and taken it to its logical conclusion. So when Nietzsche pronounced that God is dead, he took that worldview to its logical conclusion and concluded that objective moral values just do not exist. There is no reason to behave in moral ways to each other. I quite admire the guy for looking at his worldview squarely in the face and the bleakness of it and articulating it and standing by it. I don't think many of us can really, deep down, accept that. I don't think we can really accept that we should live or be treated with pitiless indifference. We know, don't we, that there is beauty and there is meaning and there is significance and there is inherent worth in every human being. And evolution can't fully, I don't think, explain why we feel so deeply, for example, about justice and about fairness and about why we commend people who behave altruistically with unselfish behaviour, and why we write songs and poems and stories about such things. Evolution might be able to say that we're genetically hardwired to act altruistically because our ancestors realised that their tribe or family would benefit from such actions. But I'm not sure evolution explains why we would probably all jump into a river to save a stranger or feel guilty for not doing so. It also strikes me that most of us would feel an obligation to jump into a river for an enemy. Why is that? Why is this sense of, deep sense of right and wrong, so deeply within us? Come back to the original argument. If God, number one, does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Two, objective moral values do exist. Three, therefore, God exists. You might still think, quite reasonably, that is a huge leap. It's particularly a huge leap to say it proves the God of the Bible. Which it doesn't. But if you're looking for clues, if you want to explore clues, it seems to me that this is a clue that bears some logical weight as to the possible existence of God. Now, all of that to say, and I reckon there are probably another good 12 solid clues that bear exploration and investigation. Even with all of them together, I'm still not sure that is enough. Point three, why might the evidence not be enough? You see, we think we believe things because of rational deductions, and we don't. We're creatures of desire as well. Cogent, credible arguments and clues are not enough. We, as human beings, will often believe what we want to believe. In other words, we will require more evidence to believe something we don't want to believe. And we will require less evidence to believe something that we do want to believe. For example, if you watch Match of the Day any time in the next few weeks, I can almost guarantee you that one scenario on Match of the Day will unfold itself. And it's this. During one of the games, a penalty will be awarded. And after the game... Both managers will be interviewed about said penalty. And I can almost guarantee you what will happen. can't prove it. I can almost guarantee it. The manager whose team had the penalty awarded against them will say, never a penalty. Never a penalty. Robbed. Hard done by. That was the turning point in why we lost. The manager whose team had the penalty awarded for them, to them, will say, oh, it's probably a penalty. A good shout to me. Happens all the time. They both saw the same game, watched the same penalty, probably both saw a replay afterwards, had all the same clues in front of them, and they'll come to very different conclusions. Or differently, if you take, ask a mum, 
did your child start the fight or was another child? I would suggest she might require a higher burden of proof to accept that it was her child that started the fight. Why? Because we will, we will require more evidence for things we don't want to believe in and less for those things that we do. Which Dawkins, again, I think is honest and helpful. When he was debating with um, another professor, John Lennox, in 2008, and Dawkins said this, you could persuade me that there was a God who created everything. But this is incompatible with the idea that there is a God who cares about your sin, what you do with your genitals, and what you think about. I guess what he's saying is, I can accept the idea of a God, but not one who tells me what I can and can't do. Very honest. There's a philosopher called Aldous Huxley. Again, with incredible honesty and a desire to inspect self very closely. Huxley said this, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. And consequently, I assumed that it had none. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. If you don't want there to be a God, it's unlikely you will believe in one. Now, there are exceptions. Sometimes the manager does confess it was a penalty. Sometimes the mum does concede it was her child's fault. C.S. Lewis said that he was the most reluctant convert to Christianity in all of England. He didn't want to believe until he was just weighed down by the, the weight of clues in front of him. But evidence on its own is usually insufficient because we're creatures of desire. We're not just thinking creatures. We're a fusion of desire and deduction. So, what have we said? We've said that a fair and consistent way to come to conclusions about what we believe is to be thorough in investigating clues and their possible explanations. That's how we know things to be true very often. And we said these clues include three possible clues. Clue one was the cause behind the universe. If there was one immaterial being behind that cause, we might call that God. Second clue was the fine-tuning of the conditions for the universe and life to exist. Some scientists are fond of calling it the cosmic welcome mat. And Francis Collins said, it seems like the universe knew we were coming. And the third clue was this deep, strong sense of moral absolutes that we feel. Where did that come from? Does evolution fully explain that? And finally, we've said no matter how many compelling clues we might see for the existence of God, can't ignore the fact that we are creatures of desire as well as deduction. So, how can we respond? Jamie, I wonder if you could come and join us and we'll just think about how we respond and reflect as we sing together. If you are a, a believer in this stuff, you're a Christian, you believe this stuff to be true, you believe that God is not only real, but that he's revealed himself to us. And he's done so out of sheer love, you believe that. You believe that he's made himself genuinely, this God has made himself genuinely knowable through Christ. I want to suggest two responses to you, responses for you. One is to restate your trust in God. What do I mean by that? Well, if on the one hand he is vast and enormous enough to have put the universe into place, to have caused life to emerge, and then to endow us with such meaning and significance, 
And if on the other hand, he's loving enough to draw us to himself, to be known and loved, then is he not vast and loving enough to trust afresh this morning? What is there for you to trust again? What does it mean for you today, this week, to once again put your trust in this God? Specifically, what do you need to trust him with? If he's that vast and he's that loving, then he can carry our trust. Second response. The Bible makes it clear that Christians are to be part of the evidence for God. Christians are supposed to be some of the clues as to the existence of God. Paul puts it beautifully in his second letter to the Christians in Corinth, in chapter 3 and verse 2. Paul says, You yourselves are a letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. In, our, in the video, one of the ladies, I thought, just put it beautifully when she said, Where are God's notes? We're the notes. <laughs> We're the letter to be read. So it's caused me to ask myself this question this week. When someone reads the letter of my life, do they see evidence for God? When they read how my life pans out, the words that I use, the choices that I make, the way I treat people, are they seeing a note from God? Are they seeing some evidence? What does that mean for you this week? What does it mean for you as we sing and reflect? For us to be letters that are widely read. And that when they are read, point towards God. Are we having these conversations? What about if you're just a bit more sceptical about the whole thing? Whether God exists or not. And if that's you, I, I would repeat, I'm really glad that you came and I admire you for doing so. A couple of possible responses that I would want you to consider. Why not use these next few moments as Jamie leads us in singing? Why not use them to reflect on the clues? These notes, perhaps. Are they notes that God left to point to himself? And the second thing to consider is your desire. Because we're not just thinking creatures, we are creatures of desire as well. My question is, are you willing to follow where the evidence leads? We're going to do our best over these next few weeks to engage with some of these questions, big, important, interesting questions. And we'd love you to come along with us and explore them, if you're willing to. If you're willing to explore and see where the clues lead, we'd love you to come with us. Let's stand, and we'll sing, and I'd love you to reflect and respond as I've encouraged you.